episode five of the Off the X podcast. I am Cody. Tonight I had on Joe Damaris. Joe is a former diplomatic security special agent and former Marine security guard. We have a trend going on here, it seems. Joe's a great guy. We had him talk about his time. Uh, well, he first started off at the Miami field office and then went to a headquarters tour in criminal investigative liaison. I've never talked about this anywhere because I, one, lack familiarity of it. And two, I've, uh, well, this is only the fifth podcast. But I haven't talked about it in YouTube videos either just because I don't know enough about it. So Joe talks a little bit about that, which I think is interesting. He moved on from SIL to U.S. Embassy Baghdad, where he and I first met. And then he, uh, after that one-year tour in Baghdad, was an assistant regional security officer in Rome, Italy. Um, After that, he went over to Nuevo Laredo, where he was regional security officer. And he encountered some unique threats in Nuevo Laredo, as you can imagine, with the cartels and... uh, Know, being across the border from Laredo, Texas, a significant amount of uh, investigative activity that goes on uh, at that consulate and in that area. After that, he was a site security manager in Sri Lanka, which is uh, that's another um, that's another duty in DS. It's kind of like a side duty that you can do that I've never talked about. Just again, I have I lack familiarity of. I know of it but I don't know enough to speak intelligently about it. Joe does. He did it for a few years. Uh, And that was his last overseas assignment. And then he came over to San Francisco. He was the assistant special agent in charge. And he gives some good advice to aspiring special agents or current young special agents. So listen in to Joe. I really enjoyed this podcast. We did almost two hours and if you count all the time we talked before and after, we were probably two and a half, three hours. It was great to catch up. So listen in, enjoy, and I'll catch you on the back side. Thanks, y'all. There, I got you on screen now. Well, anyway, cheers, buddy. Cheers, man. I think, uh, let me take a sleep. I think the last time I saw you, uh, well, I was in Baghdad, and you were walking around with that dog. I know. Hold on. He's here somewhere. Oh, yeah. That's too, <laughs> huh? All right. Yeah, he died uh, two years ago, yeah. Well, how, adopted, adopted him, took him with us. I remember you walking everywhere with that guy. Yeah. Yep, what? Uh, didn't you adopt him from there? Yeah. Yeah. We just took him. We adopted him. They're like, we. I ran the program, so it was little crack deal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, for the listeners, he was a, a German shepherd. Yeah. Or a Malinois. Yeah. He was a German shepherd. Yeah. And he was, uh, where'd you get him from? So he was working, he was a triple canopy employee, technically working for a subcontractor called Ronco at the embassy there. And so they had a bunch of dogs. And so part of the program I managed in BSF, the Baghdad MAC security force was the dog program. So they had dogs working nonstop, checking every vehicle coming inside the compound, packages, anything like that. So those dog handlers were all South African dudes, cool group of people. We just hung out. So the wife and I, we were there together. We just hung out with them all the time, went over to their camp, had dinner with them. So 
we got friendly and we're like, listen, we'd love to have a dog. Because we heard the other agents adopted some dogs too. So they're like, yeah, you know, we want to be careful about who we give them to. But, you know, I think I, so I got the impression like, hey, be cool to us and we'll hook you up. <laughs> no one ever said that, but that was what I got. So they found a great dog, Banjo, super chill dog. He was, I think he was five years old, six years old at that time, but he'd been five years in Baghdad. Like he'd been there for a while. Um, so the handler's like, hey, man, I work the night shift. You want to come by with a wife, take him for a walk? There's no, no vehicles are coming at that time. So after dinner over at the, the DFAC, we just walk over to whatever gate he was at and just chill with the dog. We take him uh, to Travis walk him yeah. around the compound so we get some weird looks from people all the time like what the fuck is this guy walking a dog around for like like he's back on the block <laughs> they're like that looks too we'd get some people um some senior people and they'd be like no joel uh you're kind of making it look, look a little too normal here like you're just walking the dog like it's not a dog you walk i'm like i mean yeah but he likes to walk man like it's good for him it's good for us what's the big deal so we did it, man. Like we, they were the, um, I guess I can say all this now, right? But uh, <laughs> we would sneak him into the SDAs at night because we felt bad towards the end when we knew we were going to adopt him. We're like, I want this dog to get used to us. So we'd wait till it was all dark. He couldn't, facilities was like, no dogs inside any of the SDAs. So we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So after it would get dark, sneak him up the stairwell, get up early, sneak him back down. Um, yeah, he was, he was famous in our area, so. That's all right, man. You can say a lot of things now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned in the book, you know, and Bill Miller wrote the book. Uh, he wrote me on, on LinkedIn. And, uh, but he, you know, I, I, in the book, I talk about bringing my team up to the room, cooking a gumbo, drinking some beers. And, uh, you know, as long as you were just a good human and behaved somewhat, you know, uh, it wasn't that big a deal, you know? So, right. uh, yeah, we all got stories like that. <laughs> Yeah. So, hey, man, let's let's talk. Uh, you know, the podcast is about well, mostly DS agents, former DS agents, security contractors, people that support the mission. Uh, so, man, if you could tell us a little bit about your your background before DS, and then kind of, uh, you know, what made what turned you on to DS. And yeah, no, this podcast, you're right, covers all those different topics, and I, it interested me because I've kind of dabbled in a little bit in pretty much all of those worlds. After the after high school, I joined the Marine Corps back in it was ninety seven. Um, I was in administration out of boot camp. Got assigned to San Diego Miramar for a couple of years, and I think the only reason I'd even joined was because my older brother had joined. And so <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, he's, he's like, it's awesome. You get to you know see the world, do this and that." I'm like, "Well, might as well." So I did it. Um, but uh, I wanted to see a little bit more than San Diego. And it's, when you're an admin, it's a good job, but it, it kind of feels like you're not really in the Marine Corps sometimes. And my younger brother joined and he was a grunt. He was always making fun of me. So I'm like, you know, I got to go do something a little bit more. So there's in the Marine Corps, there's those three options, the three B billets. So I took the one that allowed me to get out outside the U S the Marine security guard program, went to school in 1999 over in Quantico and out of school, I was assigned to Cyprus, Nicosia, Cyprus, out in the Mediterranean Ocean, Mediterranean Sea. And it was it was everything I thought that it was going to be. And, you know, like recruiters overpromise, they didn't overpromise shit on that post. <laughs> Today, probably the best time I ever had. I mean, I was, I was actually sitting down trying to think of stories like, 
what are some cool stories? Everything had to go back to partying, <laughs> just going out, barely making your curfews and getting in trouble. It was, it was the typical MSG post that I think a lot of people had heard about. And so, man, I loved it. And uh, I made good friends. It was the company headquarters. The first sergeant was there. The captains were all there. And they got to know me pretty well. I, was, I think I was pretty well liked. And so bid time came around and they're like, Joe, don't get your hopes up. You're going to go some shithole. I'm like, that's fair. I get it. But I was like, I'd love to go to, to Colombia or San Jose, Costa Rica. I was just throwing that out there. <laughs> they're like, dude, shut the hell up. But I, I, you know, I, I put those on my list and I get San Jose, Costa Rica. I'm like, oh, dude. My, my luck is just on a roll. And so I'm like, I'm like 10 days, two weeks out from leaving. I got my orders. I'm ready to go. And I'm pumped. I think I was about to ship out stuff. And the first sergeant's like, Joe, I need you to come into my office. Sit down. I'm like, oh, shit. I got caught for something. And he's like, no, everything's great. But check it out. Have you ever heard of Colombo? I was like, I'm thinking Bogota, Colombia for some reason, because that's all I thought in my brain. And I was like, yeah, I've heard of, I've heard of Columbia. He's like, no, no, Colombo. He's like, we just had a, a, to RFC somebody there. So we need, we need someone there like in a week. And I'm like, of course, like I'll go, like, I'm not going to say no to the first sergeant. And he's like, okay, cool. So I'm, I'm not even, I don't even know where this is at this point. I know it's not Columbia because he told me that. So I leave and I'm doing, I don't even trying to find out where this place was. And it was Sri Lanka, which I didn't know where the fuck that was. So I'm trying to figure out where this place is. Um, and you know, the internet wasn't, wasn't all over the place at that point. So it's not like you just jump on things quickly, you know, but I found out where it was. And so I went, it was a, it's a small Island country. I know you had Perkins, Mike Perkins on here. He was the RSO there a a little bit later. I think I was there from the end of 2000 to, um, early 2002 and everything. I was listening to his stories, man. I was like, just reminiscing because he's, it's so bizarre um, in, in that time period, the civil war was pretty hot, but when you're, you know, 22, 21 years old and there's like two bars in the whole town you can go to, that's all you really need. And that's all I needed. I had a great time there. Um, looking back, I think about all the, the, the shoot, the gunfires at night, that military checkpoints were stopped all the time. Um, tanks across from the embassy. It was, it was a 180 from Cyprus, but I mean, I loved it there. I had a great time there. Um, one funny story before I get, jump out of the MSG program. I was in a, a tuk-tuk, you know, those little things you ride around town in. And uh, we weren't supposed to really be in those, especially at night, just because, you know, it's not, that's not a good place to be. <laughs> so, uh, but I would, I would, I'd meet these, these girls and go, go in tuk-tuks and just try to take them to these places, the bars and stuff that we could go to. And I see a checkpoint. I'm like, no big deal. I got my little diplomatic card. We'll get through. Um, but they decided to pull me over. Or no, we came to a stop. So we stop in our little tuk-tuk, and I'm getting ready to, we're getting ready to go past the checkpoint. And all of a sudden, they pull. They say, hey, get off to the side. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. So I get my documents, and I take them out, get them ready. And they're like, get out of the tuk-tuk. I'm like, hey, no problem. I got my, my little thing here, my little get-out-of-jail-free card. They're like, doesn't matter. Get out. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. So I get out, she gets out, they separate us and they're just, I can see them like yelling at her, like surrounding her. I'm just like, oh, like, did she do something wrong? <laughs> like what's going on? Is she a local or an expat? She was a local, like local, local. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
yeah, so they're talking to her and they're just trying to talk to me. And I'm like, guys, I don't know what you're saying. No, no speaky trying to communicate with them. And the next thing you know, like they're pulling us and putting us up, putting us in separate trucks. And I'm like, whoa, this is not normal. <laughs> um, but at this point, I don't have a cell phone. I just have a beeper back then. Mm. So we're moving to cell phones, but I just didn't have one yet. So I'm trying to send a quick little message out. Like, hey, call me. Need, or I need to get a call in. So I send that out, but let's say I knew it was going to take a while before anybody got back to me. So they take me to the jail, which is right across the street from the embassy. And they bring me in there and they do their, whatever kind of booking process that they do there. I'm sure my fingerprints are something still over there in Sri Lanka. But I'm, now I'm starting to like freak out a little bit. I'm like, I'm getting arrested in Sri Lanka. This is, this is bad. I'm, and I didn't do anything at this point. But they're just yelling at me, yelling at me. They're like, take off your shoes, take off your other shirt, and this and that, and get in the cell with this bunch of dudes. I'm just like, all right. So I'm taking off my shoes and stepping in the piss, which is in the cells full of piss, and I'm just trying to find my little corner. And so I'm in there for like an hour or two, not too long, I think. And they bring me back out and they say, hey, come make a phone call. I'm like, yes, they have rights here. Well, they didn't, but I go and I pick up, I call post one immediately. I'm like, hey, and it was the A slash. I'm like, hey, man, there's a problem. Like, I just got thrown in jail. I don't know what the fuck's going on. He's like, what are they saying you did? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, you need to get the FSNI over here, like, ASAP. Like, I know it's late. Call the RSO. <laughs> I'm not staying in here overnight. Like, this, there's some creepy people here. <laughs> so uh, so he's like, okay, yeah, I'll make some calls. Good luck. Click. And so I'm like, oh, shit. So they take me back to my cell. And probably three or four hours pass. It's late, late at this point. Um. They bring me back out again. And uh, this time I come in and there's like the police chief there, the RSO standing there. And he's like, just giving me that look like, what the fuck did you do? And I'm, and I, and I'm, I'm about to like, Hey, so I go in there. I'm just like, like Joe, what happened? I'm like, I have no idea what happened. And so the chief speaks English. She's like, well, you were having intercourse in the tuk-tuk with that girl. And I'm like, what? Like, no, I wasn't. Like, I'm starting to think, like, what was I doing? What was I doing? I mean, we were probably making out or something like that. Swear to God, I, I'd be honest if I, I was doing more, but I wasn't, I swear. So, so there was a back and forth. They didn't believe me. I mean, they talked to the girl and they forced her to say whatever they wanted to. I never saw her again. I heard actually her family stripped her out of the country. Um, but uh, the RSO was like, listen, just shut your mouth. I'll get you out of here. No harm, no foul. Just say whatever they want. Or if they say something, just keep your mouth shut. I'm like, okay, fine. So I didn't admit to anything, but my silence to them was an admission that I did whatever they said I did. Um, but they cut me loose. They're like, you can go back with the, uh, the RSO. So he took me out and he's like, man, I know you didn't do anything wrong, but you know, that's, that's a tight spot. You don't want to be stuck there for weeks at a time. Like they can't arrest you, but there's real life and there's like consular immunity. So in Sri Lanka at that time. So I'm like, I get it. I get it. So that was kind of like at the end of my time at, in Sri Lanka anyway. So I left there and I'll, I'll jump forward because Sri Lanka was actually my last post overseas in DS. I saw that. Yeah. And it was funny. So I get there and I see the same FSNI there that I'd seen who'd, who'd come as well with the RSO that night. And I was like, man, do you remember that night? And he's like, I totally remember. He's like, do you know, do you know why you got pulled over? I was like, they said I was like, like trying to bang that girl in the tuk-tuk. He's like, yeah. He's like, no, no. What happened was you were making out with her, but there was like a nun 
you pulled up in a tuk-tuk and a nun saw you doing that. And so she yelled at the military guys that you told them that you what, said you were having intercourse with her. And that's what sparked the whole thing. And so they're not going to, if a nun says it, like it's, it's over. Like your, your word means nothing at that point. So like, yeah, that's kind of like the background of it. It was just, uh, that's my only time getting technically arrested overseas. What was the religion there then? So what, so the, cause the, the unrest was from Buddhists, right? The, uh, the, the rebel groups, if I remember correctly from what Mike said, it was the Hindus and, and Hindus, the Buddhists, right. the Hindus and the Buddhists are the majority there. Okay. And, but there's also a Christian population and a Muslim population. So that's, it's such a diverse country, but the Buddhists rule the shit out of that place. And so, like, I think I heard Mike talking too. So the Tamils, the Tigers, were the Hindus, and I mean, after the, the Civil War, pretty much ended with the Buddhists just killing as many of them as they could till they gave up. It was it was uh it was pretty bad. But yeah, it's a pretty. I mean, now if you go back there now, it's a pretty diverse country. There's Catholic churches, there's Christian churches, there's a lot of very fast growing Muslim population. Where exactly on the map is Sri Lanka? Where's it fall? It's just south of India. It's a huge island right off the coast. You'll see a big landmass right there, right off the coast. And it's a lot of people who've served in India or visited India and both in Sri Lanka describe it as like a cleaner, more civilized India, which now it is, which it is. It's it's better. Populous like India, because India is one of the most populous countries in the world. Right? No, it's not as populated. You don't have that okay. overcrowding. And there's a lot of poverty there that's similar, but no, it's a, it's... It's a lot better. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's my fun story there. Well, that's a good, that's a different one. It's not an operational <laughs> story. It's an operational, <laughs> and, and, you know, cause you were conducting nightly ops. It sounds like. Uh, <laughs> it was a fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, different kind of operation. Yeah. What, uh, so when did you get out of the Marine Corps? So I got out in 02 and I, I used my GI Bill, went back to college. Um, I'd already been doing like a lot of other Marines doing college while in the program. So I'd gotten about two years done. So I was able to get back and transfer as a junior. And then I uh, did two years over at Sacramento State uh, University. I remember getting there. I was like, what's the fastest way I can get a four-year degree? And they're like, criminal justice. I'm like, done. So they, And they were right, man. Just under two years, I got what, in and out. Was your goal DS? the whole time yeah at that point it was so and actually i applied in my senior year so you can apply to ds in your senior year so as soon as that thing came out in 2004 i applied and i had my interview in 2004 in san francisco at the san francisco field office um and man i i bombed it <laughs> i did i don't I, they, so Chris Disney is one of the famous guys that does a lot of these things. And, um, so I go through the whole test. I go through the panel, answer the questions, do the written. And you know how it is like, um, as each phase, they start to weed people out and they say, thank you. No, thank you. So we started at a group of seven or eight. And by the end it was just me. And so I'd finished the panel. I knew I bombed some questions and I didn't do too well. And so just by telling on the looks of their faces, so they're like, yeah, go wait out in the hallway or in the, the waiting room and we'll, we'll get back to you. So I'm like, all right, this is it. I'm just waiting for them to come out. So Chris comes out and he's like, you didn't do so well. <laughs> you didn't do very well. Um, he's like, but you did just good enough. We're, we're comfortable with passing you, 
but we rank these scores and we're, we're, we're low ranking you. So my advice to you is go out, get another job, continue with your career. And if you're lucky, hopefully you're, you're, you'll rise up the list far enough where we'll pick you for a BSAC class. Cause you know, it depends on hiring cycles, but he's like, man, it's your, my advice is just go on with your life. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, well, you know, I pass. That's a win. I'm on the list. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll have to wait six months, a year, what it is. So I waited. I don't know. I graduated. Nothing. I'd call. I can't remember that lady's name you call to check where you're at on the hiring list. She's still there. But she's probably still there, that right? The same lady, uh, LeMaster. <laughs> yeah, it's Mickey yeah, LeMaster. Right? Right. Yeah. right. Um, how did I forget? Yeah. So at each time I'd call, she'd, they'd be like, no, nah, you're like 400 out of 430. So live your life. All right, cool. Um. And they told you, told me like, you have two years to be on this list. After two years, you get kicked off. You're going to start from scratch. So I'm like, all right. So at that point I graduate college, the Iraq war is going on. I'm feeling guilty for not doing anything except being in college. So, but triple canopy sends me an email like, Hey, we're looking for folks like MSG specifically who have TS clearances. They're willing to go overseas on a, a minute's notice. I'm like, sign me up. So I, they signed me up pretty damn quick. Um, sent me some uniforms and next thing you know, I was in Baghdad in two, I think I got there at the end of 2000, um, August or September of 2005 or four I'm trying to get my timeline straight. And I was working on a DOD contract over at the Alpha palace over there. So there was a group of us and a lot of former MSGs, a lot of, um, guys I still keep in touch with. One of them was in my MSG training class. It was funny. Um, but yeah, we all were there just doing security for their particular offices. It's pretty, it was a pretty good experience. And actually I was there when Ed Seitz was killed, a DS agent. I didn't know him at the time, but we lived, he was at the Alpha Palace and we were all living on these little, little tin can, little, um, they're not barracks. What do you call those little trailers? Choose. Choose. Jeez. Right. And, we were, and it was like a chew village and there was those little rocks everywhere covering the whole ground because of the mud. It would rain. So they'd like, hey, let's put little rocks everywhere. So we'd be in there, but pretty much every, they started setting mortar rounds pretty heavy after the, I got there. And the people realized, oh, shit, this was a bad idea. <laughs> so they started clearing that out and they start, everybody starts building you know, sandbags or whatever they can do around their chews to protect it from shrapnel because that was what was catching people. And I remember that morning, it was, it was a morning time. I hadn't woken up yet. And all of a sudden, boom. Every time that happened, we'd all, we're like idiots. We'd all run out looking around like, what's going on? What's going on? Even though we know what the fuck is going on, <laughs> we just could stop ourselves, right? Um, the smart ones would like roll up in their bomb blankets and get it down. But uh, not me. I'm like, hey, hey, what's up? Um, but that day, it hit the, the bathroom chew. And that's where he was in. I, oh, I, I didn't know at the time, but they told me, I, like, yeah, there was a DS agent inside. I'm like, oh, shit, I know it. I know what DS is. And it wasn't actually until much later. I'd even learned it was Ed Seitz that, that was killed that day. But when I w- ended up in San Francisco, there's a conference room at the San Francisco field office, and it's got his a little memorial to him in the conference room. And I was like, oh, shit, yeah. Um, so it was a little full circle on that one. But, yeah, that was really, really sad. There's a lot of people who went out that way until they figured out how to actually protect those shoes better. I think when you and I were there, the chews still weren't all protected. There were, I remember guys on my team saying, Hey, there's no overhead cover on our chews. 
crazy. Uh, until they started moving to, what was it called? Uh, was the east side of the compound? Of, uh, when they moved them from across the street to the compound, and I think it was the east side. With, with the overhead. Yeah, with overhead and, and yep. kind of more hardened structures. Yep. Uh, damn. Yeah. That could have been bad or worse. Yeah, that was a that was a that was a bad time. And I I just look back now and I'm just like we were not we we were not prepared. What year was that? There Joe? was a lot. That was 2004 to 2005. So I think I did a total of 8 months there. So in early 2005 I I think it was I don't know, maybe March or April. I head back. I'm like I'm good. I had a good experience, had a good fun time, met some good people. And I was applying online, got a police officer interview back in Texas over outside of Fort Worth. And they do a bunch of hirings over there. So I took the test, passed it, and then got hired on by North Richland Hills Police Department. It's a small little municipality outside of Fort Worth. And so I'm like, yeah, Texas, why not? <laughs> so they were the first ones to answer, answer my emails anyway. So I went there. Went through the police academy in 2005, in the spring and then early summer, and finally finished all the process of the training by the end of that year, get out on the streets, and I get an email from Vicky LeMaster. It's like, hey, guess what? <laughs> we, we're getting ready for BSEC, man. You got a spot. I'm like, and at this point, I think it was like a year and 10 months so I'd already, already given up. I'm like, I guess I'm going to be a cop now. That's my life. Um, and it was, it was a good time. But I saw that email. I was like, nope, I'm taking this. Yeah. And luckily, I didn't sign one of those agreements with the PD where you have to, like, <laughs> you're stuck for a certain amount of time. They didn't require that. So I saw at the same time I got that, I was excited about it. I was like, cool, BSAC, in early 2006. But I was like, uh-oh, I got to go tell the chief. Like, I just, they spent all this money on my training, my equipment, got me through the process. And now I'm going to quit. <laughs> so I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> but, you know, I just did. I went in there, told him, I was like, hey, sir, I'm so sorry, but, you know, I didn't expect to get picked up. He's like, did you know this was coming? I'm like, no, man. It's, I, I got lucky. For me, this is a dream. I want to do it. And he's like, all right. And it, good on him. He was, I think he's just retired from that department, but he was just all about what's best for my guys and, and gals. And so he's like, yeah, man, do what you have to do. We'll suck it up. Um, I, as long as you didn't do it intentionally, you didn't join us with no thinking you were going to get that job. I get it. I'm like, Oh sweet. But he's like, uh, so I put it in my two weeks notice. He's like, no, I just drop all your shit right now. Get the fuck out. So I was like, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so I, I dropped the badge and all that. And I showed up for BSAC in our FSI in March of 2006. And I was in BSAC 90, shout out BSAC 90. Um, Awesome, awesome group of people. Now, now you got to tell them to listen. Got to tell them to listen in. They'll they'll listen. I mean, I want to say we had twenty four in our class. Okay. I want to say at least twenty of them are still on. I think, and I'm sure we probably know a lot of of the same people. Um, but yeah, a lot of them are still on. So I think that says a lot about the people in my class. They were just quality people. Um, yeah. No, it was. A group, a group of people, I, a lot of them I still stay in touch with, like a lot of us do, with our yeah. BSAC buddies and we, stuff. So We had 48 in mine. Uh, well, 48 in BSAC 102, but we did the, uh, like, well, they went a week ahead of us to Fletzy, so we split up a week, and then they, we waited on the front end, they waited for us on the back end of Fletzy, and then we all trained together. But I think the majority of classes prior to us, and maybe even after, were, 
or 24. Uh, yeah, I think right. 24 was the the number, but then they went through a hiring pickup and they started blowing up those classes. We had some squared away people too. I mean, well, have, several have gotten out, but out of the 48, I'd probably say 35 to 40 are still in, you know, which I think is pretty good. It's just the light DF DS. I love the lifestyle as a single guy, but uh, it, it was tough on families in, in some cases. Yeah. I think they, you, that's, you could talk about that better than I could, obviously. Uh, yeah. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I mean, it's, yeah. So I, I finished BSAC, man, and, and I, I killed BSAC, but I was fortunate. I had just finished a police academy like within a year. So, like, going through Fletzy was like, for me, I was like, this is a breeze. I just did a, a driver's course, was tougher than this. I, done, I did criminal law. I did all this stuff. So, people were like, damn, Joe, like, you're killing this. And I didn't tell them shit. I was just like, yeah, you know, I study hard. No, man, I just took it. I just did this stuff. <laughs> I'm a cheater. <laughs> but um, I had a really great time. Um, and I know DS has done a lot to like improve their training, their facilities, the quality of instructors. But I mean, even the folks, the DS folks I ran into back in Fletzy, I still keep in touch with them. So for me, did it's you, always been more about the people. Have you had a chance before you got out to go to uh, Black? Is it Blackstone? No, and I didn't want to go. No. <laughs> I wanted to wait. Um, if I had stayed in, I would probably would have been there. We all would have been there at some point. But I was like, you know what? The way I know how DS runs things, I want to give it a good five years. Let them work all the kinks out. They're going to spend money and it's going to be fucked up. And then they'll get it really good. Because we usually get things right, but not not at the beginning. So I'm like, let, let's let some program managers and let's let some, some office heads fuck shit up first. And then I'll get in there. <laughs> it's a little bit more organized. Uh, probably a smart move. What, uh, what so after BSAC, your first uh, field office was Miami, yeah? Yeah. So I I was a single guy at that point, and I was like, so they put Miami list. I'm like, boom, done. Miami or L.A.? So they're like, yeah, Miami. So I went down there, and I guess just like my first my first uh, MSG post in Cyprus, I, it was everything I thought it was going to be. We were doing – Miami at that time was going hard on crim. We were arresting people left and right, you know, whether it was just a simple airport where we'd go and pick someone up who was coming through with a false passport and they'd give us a shout or like some really good cases. And I'm not sure if you know Jorge Ray or worked with him or yeah, heard of him. I, know. I, I, uh, I know of him. I've heard of him. I don't know if I've actually met him. Uh, he's all over LinkedIn these days. I think he's uh, retired now. Right. Um, pretty sharp. It sounds like really good. His really, job. really sharp. And he's a, his gift is teaching. And he wrote, he went up in the ranks after later on, but at that time he was the crim supervisor as a civil service agent in Miami. And so we had a gold mine there, like anything question we had, any type of process, program, database, idea, interview technique that we hadn't learned or thought of, he had it. And so, man, we were killing cases. I mean, my first year there, I think I arrested at least seven or eight people which at the time I wasn't even that good compared to other people. But now going back to the field office later in life, like I was killing it. <laughs> I was killing it. Um, yeah. But we also, they did a good job about getting us out on TDYs. I went on several sex state visits, which was awesome to Israel. 
I got to go to the uh, Pan Am Games in 2007 in Rio de Janeiro. I worked with um, the U.S. women's gymnastics team down there. And I was just like, I was blown away. I thought this job is the best job in the world. Like they're paying me to live in some cool hotel down in Ipanema. I, you know, my job is just make sure I, you know, track these the women, girls, wherever they were, depending on their ages. But I just make sure they get from A to B safely. Make sure that I coordinate with the the site venue. Make sure I talk to whoever the police folks are out there. And I mean, stay in communication with the talk. It was like. It was, it was everything I had thought about DS before I'd gotten on. It was just so cool. And they gave me so much responsibility so early at that point. I'd only been on a year and a half or whatever it was. And like, hey, you got this whole team. Like, go. Like, figure it out. I'm like, shit. Well, okay. <laughs> so I always look back on that time in the field office is, is probably one of my favorites. Just because of the variety of things I got to do. From criminal investigations to like traveling on protection details to... Pan Am games to doing liaison with different agencies, doing some task force stuff. I mean, I got a little taste of all. And I think that's what I've always, when I came back around later on, I was like, that's the experience I want to make sure everybody walks away with their first two or three years. And so I know depending on how things go, DS has always thought about whether, you know, is the field office a necessary part should we make it mandatory for people to be there at the, at the beginning? And I think the answer is definitely yes. I mean, we have the service needs. And so at some points they put people on MSD or SD right out of BSEC. I think that's a disservice. I think that field office experience as a new agent is, man, was the best. And it, I think it really built some confidence in myself that I, I used in the future. So yeah, I had an awesome time in Miami. Yeah, I would agree. I I, uh, I make these YouTube videos just talking about putting stuff out there about DS. And even on the podcast, and I, and I mentioned, uh, take advantage of the field office. You can do so many things. And you can kind of test a little bit of everything and see what you like, at which point your next assignment, you can bid on that. Uh, I had an opportunity to go not to the Pan Am Games, but to the Olympics uh, oh, in San I Diego. And I, I did you. not go. I didn't go. Oh, I ended up I ended up getting accepted, uh, and I ended up going into back surgery. Uh, uh, well, needing back surgery, blowing, throwing my back out, not being able to go, and ended up having a back surgery, and uh, and didn't go. And I was uh, I regret that so much. I wish I wish things would have been different because is uh, well, I had several buddies that went on that trip. They were out there, and it was, like, uh, it was in Brazil. Uh, oh, you know so. They had a they had a great time. And, I'll bet uh, they did. And, you know, and then and then I got out, so it's like, man, I just missed that experience. But uh, anyway, yeah, field offices. I, I I agree, and I also think you you just learn a lot too. You know, when it comes to investigations, I mean, if you do a, a fraud investigation and then or you do a, a death on the compound investigation, like I had at one of my posts, right. you you still learn the basics of what you need to do in that investigation, whether it be from documentation purchases. Or, or taking pictures or whatever, you know, you, you learn a good bit. Uh, yeah, definitely. And then you went to SEAL, and uh, I don't know much about SEAL. Shit, no, I didn't know SEAL. anything about SEAL before I Tell us it. about it. <laughs> yeah, so at that point, I had met a passport specialist at the, at the office. She was, uh, now she's my wife, but... You know, I'd go down there for different things. Uh, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it is. But um, so 
we had met at that point and been dating for a couple months. And so she's like, I'm moving to DC. So I'm like, well, guess what? I guess I'm moving to DC too. So I, I jump on, I hear, I was like, if you want to go to DC, it's easy. And it's really easy. So I just put out a bunch of bids on different DC posts. And Syl was the first person to scoop me up. Um, and I, I, when I got the handshake on it, I actually, again, had to go back and look, what the fuck is Syl? Cause I didn't know. I just kind of bing, 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 went down the list. What does the acronym SEAL stand for? It stands for Criminal Investigative Liaison Branch. Okay. I think they, st- they still use the same SEAL acronym as, the- as for their section. So when I got up, there was a relatively small small group up there. And their responsibility at SEAL is to kind of be the go-between. They have a bunch of different, but it's a lot of liaison functions. So they're supposed to take all the requests from local agencies throughout the U.S., for investigations that have to do with passports, visa frauds, or anything international. And so if a a PD or a sheriff has any sort of questions or they have a case they need worked, that is supposed to come to SIL. SIL will take it, vet it, see if we can actually help them. And then if it's going to go to an RSO, they'll shoot it out to that particular post. And they kind of just connect them at that point. And then we track it. So there's a lot of desk work. There's a lot of phone calls. There's a lot of outreach making sure that a lot of these departments and organizations know who we are because like you know how it is like ds we're our own worst enemy sometimes when it comes to letting people know that we actually exist and and kind of like the value we bring for international investigations so we spend i spent half my time constantly going out to these different you know groups whether it was interpol i worked there for a little bit um, some of these state sheriffs associations and PD associations, just to let them know, give them a presentation, tell them about what we could do, tell them about the ARSOI program. And a lot of them were always just like, holy shit, like we didn't know you guys were in almost every country in the world. And it's, it was over and over again. So, and that, that hasn't gone away. <laughs> that need hasn't gone away at all. Um, but yeah, it, it, for me, I think a lot of the value being at headquarters was what a lot of people say it is. And I think a lot of people who've served at big embassies got the good experience like that too. It's like everybody who's somebody in your organization is there at that point. Um, well, a large majority of them are there. And so like you're going to be put into meetings or you're getting involved in different discussions that you may not ever get the chance to be involved in again, just because of where you're at. And you might be, the subject matter expert, or you might be the person that's talking on behalf of a, a group of RSOs who are working a particular case or issue, but you're sitting there. So, hey, come on up, sit up there and talk, tell us what's going on. So you get a lot of exposure. And so I didn't think about that. That's not why I went there, but I, that's, that was a lot of value I got out of it. So as for anybody who's <laughs> either in DS or, you know, thinking about joining at some point, I would say it sucks to wear a suit and tie. <laughs> I, I hated it. Um, and living in DC is not, or even Northern Virginia is not cheap, but I mean, would I want to go back and do it again? Probably. Yes. I mean, it's, it's valuable. So yeah, I learned a lot. Networking is so important. I I learned the value of networking actually after I got out of DS. I never in DS, I didn't intentionally network. I just made friends with people and drank a lot of beer with people, I guess. And that's, (laughs) kind of how it go go to Baghdadis on that's networking know, for every day for a year <laughs> that's, network. that's networking yeah that counts uh, yeah but headquarters is, is where it's at you know and uh our last guest Matt Kovats was was with uh 
he was like a four. There was a two in his office. I don't know if you listened to the podcast, but he was with John Eustace and uh, yep. another guy. Another guy. Right. That we, Doug Allison, maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. One of the names that it's obviously a well-known in DS. And man, if you know those guys, you know. Yeah, like, you're going to get your assignment. You'll be all right. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. And when you're moving every two years, that's all you're thinking about. Like, as soon as you get your handshake, I'm already thinking like, man, where am I going to bid out in a year? <laughs> I mean, or your, or your spouse or partner's thinking that too. Like, so it's a, it's a network is important just because of, especially in our business where you have people who are deciding your future every couple of years. I mean, that's unusual. So. Well, they're yeah, also deciding in multiple ways. They're deciding where you're going, but you have every year somebody's looking at your EER and deciding. I'm not going to miss that. How awesome you are or how awesome you're not. How awesome you said you were. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that going on too. So you went on to Baghdad uh, and you took your wife there. You mentioned that earlier. I remember her and you walking the dog that we talked about. Yeah, I don't recall seeing you at Baghdadis too often, Joe. Just so you know, <laughs> that place was, was trouble, man. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, that was uh, we would go there. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll back back up. So my wife, at at that point, she was still with the State Department, working passport stuff up in D.C., and she's like, "I'm good with this." So she had finished her master's, and like, I'm like, "Well, you know, there's a program." And we had just gotten married. So I'm like, you know, for at that point, you had to be married. But if you have a clearance and you can get a job, you can come with me. So she applied, boom, got a job. So we both got there in October or September, I think September of 2010, sometime around there, after finishing BRSO and high threat and all that. So we get there and we were, so we were a married couple and people were looking at us like, are they together? Like what's going on? <laughs> Cause there wasn't too many married couples. Um, especially I think on the RSO side of things, there were a few, but not too many. And, um, so we get there, we, we arrive at, what's it, what was the name of the place over at the airport that we had? Sully, Sullivan? Sully compound. Sully, Sully compound. Right. And, um, so they have the rhino there, and I was you, I was reading your book, and it was reminding me of it. I forgot a lot of the details about the rhino, so I'm like, ah, oh, shit, like that's because I'd been there before, and I'd done out route Irish before back when it was really bad too. And I'm like, shit, I'd rather not be on that <laughs> without all my gear and everything. Um, so there was a a little bird fl- making some rounds. No, it wasn't a little bird. It was another type of transport. It's a helo, but they were making some transports for some things. They're like, hey, we got a room for a couple people. If anybody wants to volunteer for that, I'm like, fuck yeah, I'd rather do that, get there quick. So they ran through and we didn't make the cut. But I don't know if you know Nick Stanky. Yeah, I don't know. I'll remember remember to this day, he gave up his spot because I she had gotten a ride, but I didn't. She got made the list. Shocking. A woman made the list. She got she got on the helo, but because I couldn't, she wasn't gonna go. So he's like, forget it, you know what? I'll give up my spot, Joe, you go. And so you can stay together. And I was like, oh man, I, yeah, I owe him a few favors, but yeah, that was one of them. So we get on there and we head over to the, to the embassy in record time. And uh, later on in the day, the rhino got there and we saw those poor people, but uh, man, we had a great time. If you're married, they give you a full SDA. So a lot of people share. It's usually two agents or two people to 
to a SDA apartment. Each has their own room and you share a, a living commons area. We got our own apartment. It was brand new. The SDAs were really nice. I mean, ballistic windows and no, nothing opened, but besides that, it was great. Yeah. And so I worked in the, the guard program and the emergency response stuff. And I listened to your interview with Tony. So, and I met Tony. Um, so I was a young, still a young, you know, relatively naive to the ways of DS. And I'd been there before, but you know, it's a whole different world being at the embassy there. And I, I get there. And within the first month, my boss is like, Hey, check it out. I need you to kind of manage the QRF. I'm like, okay, cool. No problem. Who are they? Where are they at? So he hooks me up with Tony. So Tony's the shift leader at that time. One of the shift leaders. And I remember meeting with him and I could tell him he was just, he was just scanning me up and down trying to figure out who, like, is this guy going to be a pain in my ass? <laughs> is he going to try and tell me what to do? <laughs> so when I heard him talking um, on your, on your previous podcast, I totally, I totally heard his voice and I remembered everything. But I, I think I was like you. I think I was one of the, the folks who just kind of, I'm not an expert. I have life experience, but I don't have this type of experience. And so let me just learn from you guys. And I'm not going to throw administrative bullshit on you unless I have to. But <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to screen you for, from that stuff so you guys can just do your job. Um, it's tough to do, you know. It's tough to do when you're, you're working with really skilled contractors. And then you're probably not as skilled, but you're in charge of them. It puts you in a really interesting experience. I saw a lot of people fall on their faces doing that. And the teams would kind of just not turn their back on them, but they made life difficult. And, you know, and then on the other side, the ARSO can make life difficult for the team. Mm -hmm. And so I saw that and I was like, I'm just not going to be that, that guy. Like I trust these guys. They've been here for too many years. <laughs> I'm going to trust that they figured out the best way to do business. Cause in the contracting world, if you're not good at what you do, you're not going to be around for five, six, seven, ten years. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to learn. They have to learn to play the game as well. And the good ones like Tony really learned how to play the game. And I and I say the game. It's not it's not a negative connotation. It's just they learned, you know, the politics of DS, and we have a lot of politics of the State Department in general. They learned the politics of their own company. They realized at the end of the day, these companies are there to make money, and that to make money, they need to have these contracts run well. Um. And so the good, good ones really learn that. Um, so yeah, and I had a great experience working with those guys. And, and part of the QRF, whenever there was IDF into the compound, the duck and cover would go off and boom, boom, boom. We'd immediately be you know, scanning the guard network radio just to figure out, oh, hey, it's over in this side of the compound, this side got hit here. And so the QRF would be monitoring that. And as soon as they had a location on where it hit, boom, they'd be en route. And... Um, their job was just to kind of set up a perimeter, respond to any sort of, you know, if there's a mass casualty, if there was an injury, they were there to do both. Like, just get the Band-Aid on whatever was happening and make sure everybody else stayed the fuck out. And they were good. And I would, I mean, they didn't need me. <laughs> they, they probably didn't even want me with them at that point. Um, but I would, I don't know if you remember, but some of us had those little four-wheelers. Yeah, I was always chilling. <laughs> those four-wheelers. Yeah, so we'd have those parked by our SDAs, and my, my our boss was always like, the the rule is like, you guys know, you, you you group up at the SDAs if it's after hours, 
get your team, get on the radio, and then we'll assign people. But um, me and my supervisor were like, fuck that. As soon as we heard where it's at, we jump on those four-wheelers, grab our med kits, and go. And so it was exciting. It was fun. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was scary sometimes, I think, just because every time you're going out there, you weren't sure. I think at one point, one of them hit the, the roof of that, the guard where their, their camp was. But they had that cover in place. And so those covers were meant so as the mortar impacted, boom, it would explode before it actually went further into the, their shoes. And those things work really well. But you never knew. You just never knew what you were going to run up on. Yeah, and you know, with, with IDF, we laugh a lot that it came in so frequently and we were where we were, whether you're in a bunker, you're in bad gaddies, you're inside your SDA. But the thing about IDF is you never know. You can't fight against indirect fire if it's your day it's your day if you're in the wrong spot like in sites unfortunately then it's your time and uh we're fortunate that the ibm shooting the idf weren't very accurate right uh, (laughs) they missed us a lot uh but they also hit us sometimes too um yeah and uh yeah yeah that was interesting you know tony uh was a good guy for you to encounter the first time. Uh, yeah, because, I was lucky. Because, yeah, you know, and I, I didn't meet him first. I met a couple others, um, but I worked, I got very close to Tony. He's down here with me in, in Southern California now. We, we see each other. Before COVID, we see each other pretty regularly. And um, he had a great balance of being a professional, but also seeing the human side, and, and he could be a friend as well. But he knew that line, and he knew how to how – to, uh, how to manage both. And he'll tell you if you're fucked up, but he knows how to do it in a professional way. Um, and, uh, solid as can be, he has a good name in, in triple canopy. And, uh, and, uh, I'm going to have a, one of the docs on in uh, a few weeks. I have, have a few people lined up. Um, and, oh, one of nice. the docs and, and he met up, uh, he, he, Tony basically helped him out and did some good things for him. So, you know, anyway, he's got a, He's a good, but you know, and they don't last. That they won't make it to shift leader if they're not any good. You mentioned that, and especially in that position. And I recall several of those guys, contractors and SPS. Remember when the SPS came in? Were you there when the SPS oh, yeah. program started? Yeah, there was a lot of SPS in my high threat yeah. course. When DS agents uh, were being complete dicks, and uh, they were. Uh, whether trying to pull rank or pull, you know, pull whatever, uh, get someone out of a job. And the, the, the contractors or the, or the SPS guys would, would, you know, felt comfortable enough with me to chat with me on the side and say, Hey, Cody, this is happening. What do you think I should do? And a couple of times I say, I'm going to talk to that motherfucker and tell him to chill out. And I can think of a couple of names that I won't say, but, <laughs> but if tell you're me listening, after. we'll talk after <laughs> if you're listening, don't, you know, don't be a dick. It's just not hard. Am I, am I, yeah, am I you'd right? be surprised, man? You'd be surprised. Like, you think it's there, hard. Don't go there and pull rank and, and, uh, and start telling people you work for other three letter agencies and start. Cause nobody wants to hear that. Number one, just go in and learn it and you'll earn a lot more from that. I mean, you were a Marine. So guaranteed Tony was like, Roger that check one. He's a Marine. Good. And then sounds like along the way you did everything that they liked or needed or wanted in a, in a leader. And, and you know what? And I, I feel like my job a lot of the time was, I mean, I was, I was with the protection teams, but one of it was just look, just 
whatever shielding them from everything and having their back. If they screwed up, they screwed up and I'm telling them. Uh, but if they know you have their back, then man, it goes a long way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, I, I had a really good experience. I worked for them with them. I, th- I don't know if Tony was there the whole time. I think they switched him out or he moved up the ranks at some point, but no, I had a great experience and I would, for contracting, it's tough, man. I mean, they they say manage up. That's that's one of the places, especially for shift leaders, they have to really be good at that. Because I think a lot of ARSOs and RSOs over there, they really want to do the right thing. And they're only there for a year. So they just want to make an impact. But it's like when you go to another post where you're an RSO or an ARSO and you have an FSNI, like they know you're coming in. They know you're there for two years. <laughs> so they're they're just like thinking in their brain, this guy's a douchebag or this girl's going to be a problem. Like I'm just going to manage them until they get the hell out. And I think a lot of the contractors kind of look at some of the ARSOs like that too. Um, but the good ones did also keep a good open mind and and realize like, hey, we're just trying to do a good job too. So f- let's work together. And Tony was one of them. We had the visa issue going on uh, uh the guys couldn't get visas or their visas expired or whatever. Actually, it was both. Uh, and I don't know if you were still there at that time. I, I got there in April, 2011. So you were probably on the back end of your tour. Yeah. Um, and I think it was 2012 where there's a visa issue where uh, triple canopy was having trouble getting visas for the guys coming in and the visas for the guys that were in were expiring. And so they were worried about getting caught up because they were the ones at a checkpoint that would get out and do the negotiations and everything. And so we started, you know, they were continued concern, concern. I said, I'm going to talk to whoever. And I had no power or whatever, but I tried, I would run it up the chain. Like, listen, we got to get this fixed. These guys are nervous uh, to the point where I said, you know what? Here's the deal. We get to a checkpoint. They don't let us through. Everybody gets buttoned up. I get out. Breaking all the fucking rules, right? You never break. You never break. Yeah, don't break that seal. <laughs> don't break the seal because the protectees are in there. And I said, uh, if the, sh- the shift leader was Cuba, and uh, I don't know if you remember Cuba, great guy. And I say, Cuba, if you're willing, you get out, walk up to my spot while I get out simultaneously. I go talk to him. You sit and you button up, and uh, and we'll go from there. And that bought me so much street cred. <laughs> you, you gotta you gotta get that hey, street cred man but but, uh, but i was like i was i was uh you know i was sincere in doing it because i didn't want they were they were concerned about it. and but small things like that when you're when you're looking out for these dudes even if it's just training with them and and even if you correct them or let them correct you because there's times where people while they're training you and it would correct me and i was like roger that i'll do better right um uh, and it goes such a long way. And I think that's one of the more important things in DS when you go out to these high threat posts is, is to learn that you're going to be working with these guys that are so skillful and have been there a long time. Yeah. No, I was, yeah. it's probably one of the better overseas posts. I, I learned with just one year, but it has such a big impact. I learned so much about all the other bullshit that we have to deal with in, in RSO work, you know, co- contract management, guard force, stuff like that. Like that's an important part of it. It's not the fun part, but that it just that place was on crack. Everything was on crack in that place. So, yeah, Thursday nights time. come rolling around. <laughs> I was there a few times. We would sit outside, <laughs> so the wife and I would go in, have a good time, and then we we'd go outside. And there's a little patio area, and we just watch. We just have our little drink. I'm like, you got your drink? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. And we just sit there and watch. All right, it was closing time. Who's coming out? Who's coming out? <laughs> 
you've had to you know, stumble out on every once. I in may a or may not. I don't. You know, I don't. Name, I don't name names. I don't name names. Uh, yeah, God, we 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 live for Thursday and Friday nights. And, and for the listeners that haven't been in the uh, you know the Arab world, uh, the Thursday night is the Friday night, right? So they're off on Fridays and Saturdays. Sundays like their Monday. So our Thursday night was our Friday night. And, uh, no, it was we, a good time. You got to really have a release. Yeah. That, that, that pot that I haven't talked about the compound much in Baghdad, but, uh, well, I do in the book, but it's, I mean, it was not, it was everything you needed was there at any, any time of the night. You could, you can get some snacks. You can get some food. You can go swimming. You can go work out. You could, uh, pretty much do anything you want. I, I you was know. getting swole there. I don't know about you. I was, I was doing two a days. I mean, you don't have, what else are you going to do? You work and you can't even work a 12 hour day. You still ain't got nothing else to do except for eat. <laughs> so, you know, it was, a, I was reading your book too. And I was like, get all nostalgic. Remember the grab and go. I'm like, shit, I forgot all about mm-hmm. that. I remember that at the MSG or the, the hit over near the MSG uh, house. Yeah. Were you there for that? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't so- there at the MSG house. I just remember responding to it later on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a close one. That was a close uh, one. Right next, was- right next to it. Yeah. Bombs over Biden. That's right. Yep. Well, good. So uh, it sounds like after Baghdad, you might have got one of the places on your list. <laughs> Tell us it about was, this new magical location. Man, people were so pissed at me. I was getting zero love that, that week. Um, I've always been pretty lucky with the bidding. I have zero complaints about that. Um, and some people are always like, did you, what did you do? Who did you network with? Who did you, um, assist? I'm doing some other science. You can't, you can't see it. <laughs> I'm doing something else with my hands. <laughs> it's sort of a networking uh, thing, but, um, man, I was trying so hard to get an ARSO I gig in Brazil. I was emailing every person I'd ever met at headquarters. I was making calls. I was asking people to put their names out for me. I was really networking. And when that panel came up, they gave me my number two spot was Rome, Italy. Um, I was thrilled, but I was just like, I've, I never sent any email. I never made a phone call for that place. So I think the thing I learned about that was networking is important, but timing is also just important. So if your timing lines up with the vacancy, you might, you might get the gig regardless. But um, yeah, so I got Rome, Italy as ARSO. And so my wife and I went back to do some Italian training in 2011 and then 2012 we arrived in rome italy did and, they do both language training you and your wife yeah so if you're married in the state department as long as there's availability in the class if there's space your spouse can go and it's free so sh- to this day she speaks it's not fluent but it's like a three three level italian Wow, I lost all of that shit. I, it's all gone. <laughs> I, I mean, I can ask for an espresso, but that's about it. But um, yeah, so that's one of the good benefits. They can attend a lot of the training. So she did the, she did the consular general course as well. Okay. She got a lot of free training. So I think it's a good benefit for, for family members. Um, but yeah, so we got there and I wasn't the I there. I was just an heir or so. And I wasn't, I'd heard about working there, but it was, it was, it was a good experience from, from living there. I really liked Italy. I liked the ability to travel. We went to Florence, Naples, Milan. It was, it was great. But the work there was a challenge because it was such a 180 from Baghdad. 
Um, you had three ambassadors, three senior DSM, DCMs. You had an RSO who was OC, um, a deputy RSO who's a two or a one. So everyone there is very, very senior. And everyone there is either at the tail end of their career uh, for those folks or they're at the very beginning, like myself. And so it was just a, it was a strange place to really be talking and doing security. The embassy, there's a museum. It's a beautiful place. I don't know if you've ever been there. Beautiful place. It's a, there's no wall. It's like a nice palisade fence around it. You can see everything going on inside. It's, it's a beautiful place. I mean, you can't put a camera up without going through 10 layers of bureaucracy and getting like the Italian historic people involved. It's, it's absurd. But I think after a few months, I'd heard like, Hey, you're coming from Iraq. Like, don't bring that attitude in here. Like, Take a deep breath, put on your beautiful suit and tie, and just you know try to understand that this is not the same threat level. And I, I'm like, no problem, <laughs> I can do that easy. So I think for some people, it's a challenge transitioning from a real high threat post to a, a low threat post at that time because we're always thinking about what could happen regardless of where you're at in the world, whether it's Paris, Rome. Bad shit happens in those places, and so we want to be ready. But you're dealing with a executive leadership who are not thinking that way because nothing's happened there in a hundred years. So it's a real tough place. And I, I was pretty fortunate to have a really solid RSO, a really great DRSO deputy RSO who's like taught me a lot of stuff who I still keep in contact with. Um, but I got to do some cool stuff. Like, so that's the downside I would say is like security is not a serious thing for a lot of people, but Everybody who's anybody likes to come to Rome on a trip. So we did a lot of protection there. Um, we did, there was, I mean, there was a uh, sex date came there several times. So it was Carrie. I think it was Carrie at the time. He'd come there like every quarter almost. It was absurd. Get his, go to his little tie shop, get his stuff. And I'm sure he did a lot of official meetings, but we had like Nancy Pelosi came uh, John McCain would come a lot. A lot of Scalia from the Supreme Court would come. Like every month, we had somebody coming through, and so it was just a matter of like I think Bill Clinton came through to Florence one time. I did that with detail with the Secret Service, and that was probably the one of the coolest details I did because he's he'd been long out of office by that point. But everybody loves that guy. He's so I went to Florence, hooked up with a Secret Service agent, and we kind of went and did the advance out in Florence. And Florence is like a very small city, but it's very very Italian. And he was just mobbed everywhere he went. He was like a rock star, and I was loving it. <laughs> it was such a cool experience. And he would just walk the streets of Florence, and I remember just walking with him. I think it was such a small detail, like the Secret Service would throw us in anywhere. I think it was like a left rear or right rear. And I remember just walking there like, I'm walking through Florence, Italy, like through some historic bridge with Bill Clinton. Like, this is, this is a good story. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, there's a lot of those types of experience for, about visiting VIPs, but traditional RSO work left a lot, lot to be desired. Um, but yeah, no, I had a good time. The wife had a good time. Banjo, the dog, had a good time. Had a kid there. No, it was a good time. How many ARSOs were there with you? There was three ARSOs. And so yeah, what, a deputy and senior. Oh, just oh, okay. How many, so three so, ARSOs as well. Yeah, three ARSOs. And how were your duties broken up? What were, what were your responsibilities? They rotated. Okay. They rotated every six months. The deputy would 
move your portfolio. So that way you got a good experience with each one. And like, ideally you would want to really get and dig into a program and get to know it and change things you want to. But I think it was a good learning experience because guess what? In DS, it's really tough to make those type of changes anyways. So at this point in your career, just get a good experience of what happens in each program. What does surveillance detection do? Like, how are they involved in the overall planning? How, where do their reports go to? How does the guard force work? Uh, what's the EAP uh, emergency action plan? And what are these different committees in the embassy and how do they work? So I was actually really happy. I went to another large embassy because I got to really experience a lot of the stuff. If you go to a really small post, which I went to next, you may not get that experience. Yeah. It sounds like Secret Service uh, were a lot more laid back on when they're, when they're not PPD, right? The PPD guys, yeah, they weren't. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're, those guys are just so that's a different angle, yeah. But I mean, if you were right rear in a Secret Service motorcade, uh, sounds like they were just hanging. And, and they, no, they were. It was really slim. It was a really slim detail. And I, I think at this point, so he'd have been out of office for several years at that point. And it was Florence. I don't know, but it was a slim. It wasn't what I expected. That's for sure. I encountered them well domestically, and I've actually had pretty decent experience with those guys. Um, not with PPD. It was always uh, someone else. So we had one guy in here in California when I was in San Diego, Iraq. I had the Vietnamese foreign minister and the ASEAN conference. That or APAC. One of those were up in Palm Springs. So it was one of the Asian conferences, but there, it was happening in Palm Springs. And uh, anyway, I had an experience with the guy there. Uh, I had the Vietnamese foreign minister and national security advisor was coming down and he was fine. But in Erbil, uh, there were two guys that came down for national security advisor and these guys were so high strung. And they, were, they actually told me like, we hear you guys have the best job in federal law enforcement. And I was like, I think we do. I agree with that, you know can you take us to the airport and do this? And I said, yeah, I'll take you to the airport, but we're going to have to sit down and we're going to have to have tea and we're going to have to do all these cultural things because this is what we have to do. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. I have, I'm on a timeline. I said, listen, this is what we're going to do. So I ended up, he, he said, well, can we just go on our own? I said, you can go on your own, but you're not going to be my contact. I'll get you a lower level contact. Anyway, we had to negotiate. Finally, I went with him and, uh, and we sat there, we had tea and we did what we we're supposed to do. But, it goes to our old saying with diplomatic security and the keyword being diplomatic and that like there's a process. And if you want to get things done, you can be a diplomat. You can be respectful. You can understand different cultures. And they just didn't grasp that because they came from the States. They had never served overseas. Um, and it's like, you're not ruining my relationship with <laughs> dude in fucking Iraq, where it's very important when ISIS was eight miles away and you want to come here and tell me this shit. So anyway, uh, Oh, but that said, they weren't they weren't bad. They were just so serious, like so uh kind of straight edged, I guess, is yeah. what I what I said. But they don't they don't they don't do protection like us, man. No. Anyway. It's we did a PPD, I think, right before I left, Obama was coming. I wasn't there when he actually came, but the preparation was months. It was absurd. So yeah, I didn't get to actually be there when he got there. I wish I had, but it was a completely different experience with that, that trip. So where'd you go after Rome? So after Rome, so in, in DS, a lot of, there's a lot of pressure to be an RSO, right? So there's, 
They're like, hey, if you want to get promoted in the ranks, you need to get that RSO under your belt. And so I'd heard that for years. And so it's really, it's tough at that point, right? Because DS has really grown a lot and we've hired a lot of people over the years, but that's kind of created a kind of in the middle areas, a, a pretty big bulge where there's a lot of fours and threes, especially vying for that two spot, which is a promotion rate, three to two. And to get that, you can increase your chances if you get an RSO gig, whether it's at a small consulate or you know even a deputy RSO job in some places. And so I thought, well, I'd like to get promoted. Um, I think the quickest way to get there is to try to get an RSO job. So I went through the bidding process, and I was pretty fortunate. I, I didn't bid on the really nice spots. I saw some nice spots, but I'm coming from Italy. No one's giving me any love again. So I focused on Mexico. I'd always wanted to really learn Spanish. I'm brown. Can't, can't see it, but I'm, I'm brown. But I'm adopted, so I was adopted when I was four years old. My parents are Mexican, but my adopted parents are super gringo white from Rhode Island. So I spoke zero Spanish, zero background. So I'm like, I'd love to live there, you know, get to good, get in touch with the, the background. And so I went through the pro I remember my, I keep, I keep this email to my, to this day from, I was bidding out and they're like, listen, Joe, you know, you did Baghdad. That doesn't really count as an ARSO spot. Um, so really you only have one ARSO spot under your belt and it's Rome. So it's not, you know, it's not the most traditional type of job. So we'd like to see you get at least one more and then maybe an I ARSO I job under your belt before you bid on that. I was like, fuck that. Like, yeah. I was like, don't you guys take into consideration my previous experience, which they don't. <laughs> so I'm like, I mean, if you, I'm like, if you add it up, I've been overseas like at least eight years. Like that should count for something. Um, so I gave that email just because I was able to get the job that I wanted, which was the RSO in Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, which is on the border of Texas. It's just south of Laredo, if you know where that's at. And it's, man, it's a stone's throw from the Rio Grande. It's, it's right there. And, um, yeah, so I got to go to Spanish for, for six months and then get down to, to Mexico. I want to say I got there in 2000, end of 2014-ish, somewhere in there. I, uh, in Houston, my, my area of operation was the border. So all the way from south to South Padre Island, all the way up to McAllen and Laredo. And uh, I'm familiar with the way of Laredo because they had uh, a – uh, a lady that made a child abuse case against her husband that ended up, you weren't there at the time because I it was 2009 or so. And one of the guys from, uh, uh, God, I was in my first podcast, uh, not the name, but the, what, what's the criminal unit that the OPR, they weren't called OPR back then, but the Professional office, responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. He came down and he and I went to Laredo and, and a lady from Nuevo Laredo that had accused her husband of child abuse. Uh, they were crossing the border. So we intercepted them, S- set up a meeting, but right. then she changed her mind and didn't accuse him. And it was a, it was a shit show, but I'm familiar with that area. Um, and we were, were you guys doing TDYs down there from Houston at that point? Not at the time. Yeah. Well, I, I remember I was in SIL and I was really pushing I made some good contacts with CBP and I was like, and they're like, we need help. We need DS. And they're, we're just like, dude, Houston's right there. Send someone there, TDY or something, figure it out. As I started to leave, they were doing, I think two to three month pushes where they'd go down there. And I believe that's still ongoing. It is. Yeah. It it sounds like it's a, it's a value add to have that there. 
Oh, I've always made sure I figured out who the Houston TDY agent was because they were pretty much right with CBP and Border Patrol at the border. And they were getting the coolest cases. But every now and then they'd ping because I'd always, I'd always want to know who's right in my backyard. And man, I, I found it very valuable having them there. So I'm glad they kept that program going. What, uh, what kind of threats did you face in Web Laredo? And, and what were your primary some concerns as the RSO there? Dude. <laughs> I like I like telling these ones because Nuevo Laredo is probably my favorite post from a work perspective. Um, probably not the best for the family. Uh, that's probably when the family is like, uh, DS might not be the right place for us to be. But work-wise, man, it was awesome. So when you're an RSO in a small place like that, in, RS, in, in Mexico, there was nine consulates in an in embassy. So you have nine RSO, 10 RSOs, and then who knows how many ARSOs in that country. Um, so I had one ARSO and then an ARSO I was there. So they don't work for the RSO. They work for the consular chief, but there's like a 80, 20 type of give. Yeah. But if you, if you're cool with your eye and you have a good relationship and they're a good person that it's like a 50, 50. So <laughs> I was always very, very kind to my eyes just because they, I mean, they do such an important work. Um, and there's such value added, but man, Mexico at that time, um, so that area you went down to South Padre is close to Matamoros mm-hmm. and Matamoros and Nuevo Laredo were, were probably the worst. And they, I think they still are. I, I'm not sure, but they were like the worst crime ridden, narco ridden areas in all of Mexico. Like the Zetas were down in my area. And then farther down was the Gulf cartel. And it was just every single day for two and a half years was just something else related to that. It was, I received a, so I, before, when I got posted there, I finished Spanish training. I go up to DS headquarters for consultations and consultations is where you meet with different folks who are experts in your area. You meet with DS leadership and they kind of explain to you what their priorities are. So you put on your suit, you go up to SA 20, which is the headquarters building and you meet with everybody. And at that point, um, that was such a hot spot and there was so much going on that at that point I had to meet with everybody up to the director about what was going on. So I'm, I'm there. I don't know anything about it. And they're like, Hey, check it out. So we just evacuated your air. So why from post? So, so you're going to need to know that. And you know, this threat, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, excuse me, sir. Like, what? Um, so they had actually just pulled the whole air. So I and his family, like a day before just took them out of Mexico and brought them over to Laredo, Texas, because there was some Intel picked up where some narco had taken a picture of their house. And so the th- thought is like, why are they taking pictures of his house? Um, and if you've lived in Mexico, or worked in any of those type of countries where you have a lot of people like that, like they don't fuck around there. They don't fuck around. You take every single threat, 150% serious with a hope that it's just some bullshit talking back and forth. Um, because the one time you don't, they've, they've, we've had state department employees killed in Mexico. So we take it, they've had ICE agents killed in Mexico they've had so we take it super serious um so that happened i I, that was my first experience like holy shit like what's going on down there they're like all right good luck head on down so i get there the whole aerosoi threat was it turned out it was just whoever lived there previously was a problem for the the cartel but that person had left so they but they didn't know that so it was as a precaution they, they moved him out but they moved him back to a different house but Within like I think it was six months. Have you have you worked with DEA before? I have a little bit, but I want to ask you a question. Mm. Was the person that lived there before them an embassy employee? 
Like no. was this was this GSO pool housing or was it? It was at that point, but so the nice area of every pretty much every city in the world is where the diplomats live. We live in the more affluent areas. It's just the way it is. And in in Mexico, a lot of the cartel folks who are at the top echelon are very affluent. And so they can afford the nice houses and they don't want their kids living in the shitty areas. They want their kids going to the nice schools. They want their kids living in the best parts. And so that was also a, a whole other challenge is like when we, for the housing pool, when they decide what houses we're going to rent, which ones we don't, it's super tough to know the history because you don't know who lived there. So I think it was just a previous cartel member that lived there and, and they must, you know, they didn't know that he left and we had somebody move in and that could have been bad. Dude, it could have been really bad. Yeah. But um, it was a, it was a good experience. I, we, I mean, during my time there, we had like a bomb threat. The DA picked up on some chatter about specific to the consulate. So for like a month, we had like screened everybody, every single thing that came in the in the consulate. We had bomb smithing dogs brought in from the federal police. I mean, we were going crazy for a month. It was I was just like, holy shit. Like, are they going to send more resources down here? What's going on? But um. Yeah, that that place is weird because there's so it's all a lot of it's based on intel, and DS is good at we're good at setting up security, we're good at protecting people, but on the intel sides of thing, we rely on a lot of our sister brother agencies to do that, and so that kind of sometimes creates complications, confusions. But at the end of the day, when you're the RSO, you always err on the side of caution, and that sometimes can make you really unpopular. So you're in a tough, a tough space where you're, the intel's not yours, but the people are yours. And so you have to make the decision like, uh, seems like it's somewhat credible. I got to take this particular action, whether it's, you know, moving somebody from their house or moving them out of the out of post when you don't want to. Um, so, but I learned a lot. It was, it was a good time. They were building a new consulate there. So there was, um, uh, another DS agent there who was site security manager, so I kind of got involved in that, and I learned a lot about DS in that that post. It was a good time. What was the housing like? I mean, uh, were you guys on a compound, or were you just out in town? I know you say you're in a more affluent area. What's your? Yeah. I mean, one of the probably the more mundane areas uh, besides background investigations when you're an AR. So, uh, but you were DR so here. But uh, what was the residential security program like? Like, a, I mean. Just you know, anywhere, I, I joke, anywhere or what? <laughs> I mean, no. We, so when I got there after the first few months, I set up a, a green zone, red zone, and I think it was my Baghdad experience, probably in my brain. You know, like sounds exactly like it. <laughs> we, we turned it. We did. We had it. We, I created a map using Intel. We tracked it. Incidences going on, and we just drew a line. Now, whenever you draw a line, you have a problem because now you're saying this is the green zone. This is the red zone. But you're in a place where there, there really is not – it's not that dynamic. Bad shit happens in the green zone <laughs> all the time. It's just not as much. And so your risk levels down. And so for us, it's a way of managing risks. But you have to be careful because your people who are not thinking about security and risks every day, they don't – they're like, I'm in the green zone. I'm good, right? So I can just go hang out till 2 in the morning and go to this club. Like, no, 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 no. That's not, <laughs> that's not the intent. Um, so when I got there, I, I set up this – this kind of green zone, red zone type of thing. Uh, I don't know if they still use it, but for me, it was just to try to lower the risk for people. And so in the green zone, we're all a really nice neighborhoods. 
And so we kind of had most of our people there. And I kind of joke to people who ask like, Hey, what was that experience like? Cause I was like, it's to me, I felt more insecure there 10 minutes from the border than I did in Baghdad. We didn't have mortars, but we had serious shit happen there. There was several shootings within a block of the embassy. Like they, right outside the embassy is a big main plaza. One morning, boom, 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 tons of dead bodies in the, you know, in the plaza. We had a, a new construction going on with the new consulate. There was a, a, a vehicle chase where the army was chasing some narcos. They shot at them. Some of the Browns went into the new consulate construction. Luckily, an employee wasn't sitting there because it hit right where his desk was. It was just so unstable. And you didn't have the resources. You didn't have the manpower. You didn't have a QRF. You didn't have dog teams. You had nothing. Some of us had armored vehicles, but that was it. And so we turned, what we ended up doing was we turned our houses into cages. So we all had walls nine feet tall with barbed wire. We had alarm systems, you know, barb, everything was like really locked down. You couldn't let your kids play outside the house on the street. It's a difficult, it's a difficult type of tour for a family where it's pretty much home to work. And then if you want to have a good time or go shopping, you cross the border. And that's kind of a shitty way to live. So, but you know, everybody was fine during my tour. So I think, I think <laughs> at the end of the day, I wouldn't have traded it. I see the value in a, a red zone, green zone and a visual of that. I mean, I'm a security guy, so of course I see the value in it, but I think that's, I mean, you made, you made a mark there. It sounds like now could, could you live if you chose to, uh, in Laredo, uh, in, on, on the American side? No. So you, that was a point of contention. So we're only like, we were literally 10 minutes from the border, but if you're an, a diplomat, if you're assigned to the consulate, you cannot live in the U S you have to live in Mexico. But there were some consular officers who were not okay with that. <laughs> I feel like that's changed now. Cause I mean, I'm on the border with Tijuana, right? And I believe that's changed now. And it's not every post. Um, but for ours at the time, I know there was a push to change it. Um, but, but people were receiving benefits, danger pay, locality pay. They were receiving extra funds to live in Mexico. So for us, it was like, well, you, if you're going to get that, you can't, you can't be living on the U.S. side of the border. We know it's safer, but that can't happen. So I ended up actually having to get headquarters involved, and we investigated a con- our consular, our ACS chief. For Every night, he would travel back to his house in, in Laredo. Every night, boom. Boom. And I started getting people like, hey, he's, he doesn't live here. Like, why do I have to live here and put up with this risk? But he's not. So I ended up working with the DS agent assigned to the, the port. And we have an DS actually has an analyst over at Epic, um, the El Paso Intelligence Center. Yeah. And so like they, they're like the housing for all the cool shit. And so we built a little case against him. So I ended up interviewing him. And then he actually had to go back to OSI which is the Office of Special Investigations, which is kind of like a professional responsibility. They talked to him and he quit. He's like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> so yeah, we, we enforced it. We made sure like, hey man, we're all in this together. You don't get to do your own thing, but I don't, I'm glad that's, I'm actually glad it's changed. I think there's an argument for uh, Mexico being one of the most dangerous posts, whichever post it is. I mean, Baghdad, fine, you went on the red zone, some areas were bad, uh, depending on when you were there. Like whenever the you know the military was pulling out, I know we the, increasing attacks and but the cartels, the constant, <laughs> it's nonstop, dude. Nonstop, never know what's going to happen. Those guys are fucking violent, man. 
And DA's down there everywhere. The marshals are down there. And they're doing such cool work. And I had a great time working with them. I learned a lot from them about really high-level fugitive work and investigations and intelligence gathering. But, man, it's probably a topic for another episode. But that whole that whole war on the narcos things, I don't know. You kill you kill the big bosses. You get some young punk who's 19 years old, high on, on meth, and now he's in charge. And that's not good for anybody. So there's a whole whole set of problems that comes with working down there. Um, yeah, but that's a tough area. I think at one point, uh, I forget who I was talking to, but someone made a point to me that uh, the two most dangerous places on earth for a uh, Westerner or for us, in our case, State Department official, or Peshawar, and Peshawar, yeah. uh, the Mexican posts. And I could see that. I mean, I, I don't think Baghdad was, or Bill certainly wasn't. Uh, I Kabul. You know, there's some danger there. There's some attacks. Some of the outposts are the, some of the consulates in, in Afghanistan. But uh, the constant threat that's not going to go away ever in, uh, in Mexico. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. Uh, yeah, I, I think from now that as I was transitioning to the private sector, the, one of the cool things I got from Mexico was all the businesses that wanted to do business down there. They had to contact us because they didn't. If a lot of them would hire folks in Mexico, but they wanted someone they could really, really, really trust. And so, when it comes to the U.S. government, when it comes to folks who are living it. Diplomatic security is one of the groups that they would ping, whether it was Uber, Amazon, a lot of these companies who were looking to do business. That was really helpful for me was I made a lot of OSAC contacts just being in Mexico because a lot of businesses want, wants to go down there, but there's a lot of risk. And so they need to turn to somebody. And so I made a lot of contacts through that time period there. Yeah, my current company has a manufacturing plant down at TJ. Ah. And, uh, yeah, gotta get I mean, down there. Now, now we're in we're in San Diego, so that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. But yeah, man. Okay, so after Louis Varedo, you had a, a position that well, I mean, this is on the fifth uh, podcast, but uh, one that's not <laughs> talked about a lot ever. I know, right? And it's a pretty cool gig. It sounds like uh, site security manager. You want to talk about that? So this a site security manager is one of the. I guess you could almost compare it if you're in the Marine Corps. To like kind of like a B billet, the department gives uh, diplomatic security gives you to the overseas building operations OBO, and so you're pretty much running security for the Department of State's construction company. So the OBO is their their wing that does new construction, renovation construction on large scale. So if there's a new embassy or a new consulate, OBO is the one that's running that project, um, and they run pretty slim, but. Over the years, just to make sure that OBO is, you know, adhering to all the department standards when it comes to security, and we just passed that that time. I think I saw your guys' post about Nairobi, Dar es Salaam. We've we've really upped our game when it comes to how we build embassies, and I didn't realize it until I did this job. But just how fucking in the weeds we get <laughs> when it comes to building these things, when it comes to how the precautions we take from you know, physical security, technical counterintelligence, all the stuff that goes into it. And I won't, I won't go into it, all the different stuff we do, but I was, I learned a lot when it comes to the, that process and how much goes into it. And I would, 
when I was in Mexico, I talked to the DS agent who was assigned to the consulate construction project. And I was fascinated because I'd never done construction before. And I was like, man, you have a cool job. Like, he's like, yeah, you know, it's not bad. It's cool. I learned a lot and this and that. And like, so when it came time to bid, I was like, shit, I'll do one of these jobs. No problem. As long as I could stay overseas, I'll do it. And at that point in DS, DS has been pushing for agents to do, I, I don't know if it's one, two, three tours maximum. So now I've done three looking for a fourth. So in Sri Lanka, there was a, a new embassy being built and they needed a site security manager. So I bid on that. I got it. And what they do is they throw you in a group of engineers, like a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, a project director. And you're just the only DS agent in this group of people who don't really know anything about what DS does really. They know we have standards and they know you're there to enforce it. But besides that, they look at DS as getting in their way. And I understand that now looking back, um, especially in the private sector, like there's a goal and you have to get there. Um, and they have that mindset, but I got to see a site, an embassy built right next door to an existing embassy within, I want to say shit, five yards. Like the people inside had to get earmuffs because the construction was right next to their window. And that presents all sorts of problems from access control perspective, as far as getting your workers in, make sure they don't get down to the existing embassy compound, stuff like that. Um, but having RSO experience was cool because I was able to kind of speak the language, talk to the RSO, the RSOs, figure out how they wanted me to interact with them and how could I make their lives easier to have some shit next door to them. Um, but yeah, no, it was, a, it was a really, I actually didn't enjoy it as much because construction is not my thing. And I didn't know anything about engineering and all the stuff that went into it and the plan, how to read construction plans and things like that. But now that I'm out of DS, that experience has been huge. Just being able to speak the language as the projects go, and they're like, hey, we, we have these type of design build, and this and that, and like, yep, got it. I know what to do. Show me designs. I'll, I'll get to it. So I think I'm really grateful I did that, uh, and DS gave me that opportunity. Did you have to become a specialist in like, uh, you know, what was it, 12FAM? 12FAM was the DS standards. And I imagine these guys already know if they're OBO, they know what they have to build to, right? Or is that not? Tell me. They know. They know. Um, but there's a constant. It's all about money with a project, right? So while they know the standards or they think they know them, they're always looking for a shortcut, man. They're always looking for a shortcut. And I mean, you can tell people like, look, look at projects if OIG, of the Office of Inspector General, or some type of GAO which is the government accountability office. If they come back and do an inspection, you have, there's congressional requirements, there's state department requirements, and you have to hit them from a security standpoint. They don't give a shit. I mean, they give a shit, but they're looking for ways to, to skip to the end. And our job there is as a site security manager is to know everything has to be done 100%. So that way, when it comes back five years from now and they do an inspection of how you built this embassy, they don't have to tear down half the embassy because you fucked up and didn't take your precautions. Um, so that's what it's a constant battle. And I, and if there's anybody who's listening, who's done an SSM job, man, it's one of the toughest ones as far as like holding people to account, um, man and construction folks. So I, God bless them. They have a tough job, but they're, they're willing to fight 
<laughs> there's been I, I had so many when you work with diplomats all the time you're not really getting into shouting matches as much you know when you're in construction they don't give a shit they're they're gonna fight <laughs> to get what they want so i got into all sorts of arguments um but yeah no sri lanka was a great tool it's good to be back you know after i don't know i think at that point 17 years 15 years it had completely changed no it was it was a good experience coming full circle you said some of your guys remembered you, right? Yeah, the FSI who had retired at, when I left remembered me. He lost all his hair, but he was still there. There's a few embassy employees who probably remembered me, but um, it was so weird walking into an embassy in a post one. You're just like, shit, I stood there, man. Exact. I look like, show me your logbooks, man. I know I'm there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm there. Like, it's it's a strange thing. So a lot. I got. I made a good connection with the MSGs there, just because. Um, I mean. There's no better way That's to relate easy. than having yeah. stood exactly where they stood, you know? Yeah, I, I think DSA, uh, MSGs to become DS agents have, have so much value. You know, it's just because and I was mentioning this to Kovacs on the last podcast. It's like, man, at least you know the, the minimum that you know are the ins and outs of the embassy of who GSO is, what facilities does, you know, what the consular section does. They have a lot of foot traffic coming in and out. Uh, and, and then, and then you just, you build that report cause you know what, with your Marine detachment, which you're now responsible for, uh, I, I, I just don't see of anything that prepares a DS agent better than being an MSG. I'm fucking biased. Honestly. <laughs> I may or may not be biased yeah, myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's going to be DS agents. Like, no, I don't, I don't think so. I was a. There's the worst DS agents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but uh you know I, I love working with the MSGs just because uh you know they, they they can't do it now like we do though, like we did back in the day. They have shut that pro man for any MSGs who are listening or who think about it, it's it's still a great program. I talk to them, I still keep in touch with a lot of MSGs I work with and who I serve with, but fuck man it's it's not the program it was and i i know when i came on they used to say the same thing too it was even better back before i get it but it's 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 just you know over the years people fuck up and everybody pays a price i guess they teach you that in boot camp but <laughs> nothing but it's the same thing in the program when i left so i had the fortunate opportunity to bring in the marine detachment in ho chi minh city and uh the la the prior marine detachment was the one that evacuated saigon 1975 uh, oh, so yeah it's historical it's pretty cool and uh there were so many restrictions on these guys on how they could have parties and their time a lot of it used to be up to the deck commanders and the rso right, right. and now our and i think it changes which is with each administration each uh, battalion commander that comes in or whatever and their restrictions and there was when i left they couldn't have marine house parties nope. um unless it was associated with some type of fundraiser or something like that um but i i mean i was single at the time and these young marines were single and i said hey man i'm gonna show you a good time i have that balance and they good the ones i have were great they they understood the balance there the divide um but uh you know, I was an MSG as well, so we we had some good times. I'm gonna have a couple of them on the podcast. I've already told one of them. <laughs> I'm gonna bring them here, but uh, anyway. So uh, after that, you went to where? 
Right. So in Sri Lanka, back in on Easter Day in 2019, there was a terrorist attack there, and a bunch of Islamic extremists um, did some suicide vests and blew themselves up. They blew up several churches, Catholic churches, a couple international hotels, and they blew up the hotel across the street from the embassy, killing um, a TDY U.S. government employee. And so at that point, my wife and one of my kids had already been back in the States on vacation, but I was there by myself with my daughter, who was just five at the time. So I remember an Easter day, it's a Sunday, we're just chilling all of a sudden. I hear something like, ba-boom, ba-boom, and I'm like, who's doing fireworks at like <laughs> in the morning time? This is strange. So immediately I'm like, that's strange. But uh, so I'm, my radio's on. Every house has a radio. We're listening. I'm just listening for post one to say something. I don't hear anything. And then I hear a few more. I'm just like, what? That's so strange. I'm like, but there had been um, an accident at that hotel across the street earlier in the year where a kitchen blew up from an accident. So I'm thinking, eh, maybe it's just, maybe it's something like that. Um, but then I start to see reports come in, you know, things are being blown up. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, shit. So now I'm scrambling, trying to figure out what do I do with my daughter here? I can't just leave her here by herself. Um, uh, the RSO over at the embassy, he's reacting to all the Marines. He's doing all this, what he needs to do with his, his team. I'm trying to get in touch with my team because I have cleared American contractors working at, at the site next door. So we're kind of all in the same boat. We're all affected by the same stuff. So I'm immediately calling them, making sure that they're okay. Some of them actually live in that hotel where it blew up and they saw. So they're texting me like, hey, man. This is not right. We're seeing bodies downstairs. Like, what the fuck? So, so I'm immediately trying to get in touch with them, trying to find somebody to watch my daughter. <laughs> and no, nobody's answering the phone for that. Um, so it eventually happened. I think almost 300 people were killed that, that day. Um, and they, it changed that country while I was there. The embassy ended up evacuating all family members, kids, spouses, everything like that. So I had I said, ended up sending my daughter back out, and man, it it was a stressful time because they pulled all the kids out of school, sent them back. At the, it wasn't targeted against Americans, but it was targeted in some part against international um, hotels and associations and companies, and so that was enough for the embassy to be like, this you know, the United, biggest country, most powerful country in the world, we could be on the docket. So until we're able to like, the country is able to get this under control. We need to take some action. So they did. I, I mean, the ambassador there was super new, but super strong. She was very decisive. She was she was awesome, in my opinion. Um, the RSO there did a fantastic job. The ARSOs there were, man, they worked nonstop. I remember just going to, because there was a lot of meetings. Whenever there's something like that happens, a crisis happens, and there's evacuations, headquarters gets heavily involved. EAC is the... EAC was at every single day, multiple times a day. Emergency Action Committee was meeting. We were, it was nonstop, and so I man, they did a fantastic job um, trying to keep people safe. But yeah, at that point, I think when we got back to the states, we we got, I had already ordered orders to San Francisco, so I was supposed to leave in a month and a half, anyways. So after that month and a half, I got back to the states. My family was like, uh, I think we're probably okay with if you want to stay in the California for the rest of your life. <laughs> so figure it out. I'm like, okay, well, so I, I got an assignment as the ASAC, which is the assistant special agent in charge for a field office. So I found myself back at the same exact location I had applied for 
back in 2004, which is kind of cool. Um, you go walk back in through the waiting room. Like I sat, I sat there. Shit. (laughs) Um, they hadn't upgraded their offices at all. Shout out to San Francisco, but it's a, it was a, it was a tough experience. And, um, I think, I think a lot of us who are in DS go through that type of experience where we have to really kind of take a look and we always say, Hey, family first, make sure your family's involved whether it's your assignment process or whatever it is. But when it comes down to like, should I leave DS? That's a whole different animal. Um, And those are some tough conversations to have. But I think between Mexico and having to be evacuated later on, um, it really depends on people's families and whether their kids are flexible and, you know, they can handle stuff. And for my situation, it just didn't make sense. So I was in San Francisco for a year. um, But yeah, a lot of a lot of that time I spent working on the transition out of DS. Yeah. yeah. What uh, as an ASAC, what kind of advice do you have for new agents coming in? Man, being an ASAC is a probably one of the coolest jobs if you're going to be domestic. You don't have it's like I guess it's not a deputy RSO position, but so you have a special agent in charge who's in charge of the office and all the agents. They're ultimately responsible. So the ASAC, but ASACs are responsible for like the day to day stuff. But if you have some super sharp supervisors, which I did, there's almost like you just got to find stuff to get yourself in trouble with. <laughs> you're, there, you're there to mentor new agents, really. So you can, instead of worrying about specific investigations and plans and that type of stuff, you can actually just focus on talking to new agents and be like, hey, man, what are you experiencing? Like, what do you think? Do you think we're preparing you? What, what, are, we, what are we not doing right? Or what are we doing right? And so... I think that was probably the coolest part. I would see these new agents come right out of BSAC and I was, and I would always just take time to get to know them and learn them and kind of see like, just like any job, there's some people who excel really quick and just jump in and are super adaptable and some people who are not. And we have the same issue with new agents. So I would just get time, take time to know them. And like, I was so impressed by how good they were so fast (laughs) Like the complexity of investigations, whether it was like, you know, by bus, whatever it was, like they, they picked up shit way faster than I did. They knew technology 10 times, but they had an answer for everything. <laughs> and I was like, God damn, man, if I was this good when I was your age, I would have killed it. Um, but I would say on the other side of that coin is I, I wasn't, I hadn't been domestic since 2010. So at that point, nine years. I was surprised at how much DS had changed domestically, how they approached investigations and things like that. Um, it was a different world, man. I, I actually found myself having to adjust more to the rules and to the change in culture because I was of the mindset like, let's roll. Like, if there's an, uh, if there's an arrest warrant, we, we're going. Like, figure this shit out. Let's get a plan. Go. Get a team together. Call your buddies. And we're, we're going to figure, we're going to get this arrest done now. It's not how it is nowadays. We plan. And I think it's, I think it's a smart way to approach it, you know, for safe officer safety and, and making sure we, we really look at the laws and we don't violate people's rights. But man, the, the younger agent in me was just like, let's fucking go, you know? <laughs> so I think that for me, there was a learning curve coming back and, and um, trying to mentor new agents, but being careful to take in the more of a, um, a leadership perspective. I had to kind of pull myself back a little bit, which was, I hadn't had to do that uh, to that point. Does San Francisco have some good casework? 
they have good casework, but California is a tough place to do investigations, man. Especially nowadays with all the backlash against DHS and ICE, a lot of local agencies, especially throws DS in with that group. So my boss and a lot of folks, we had to take a lot of time to make sure that AUSAs, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys and judges and stuff, they knew, hey, we're not DHS. <laughs> we're not doing immigration. Now, that's a, tough, that's a tough case to sell when at the end of the day, your suspect's going to get deported <laughs> and, you're gonna, and ICE is going to get involved anyways. <laughs> so we don't talk about that part. <laughs> but we're like, hey, we're, just, we're here to enforce you know, the visa and U.S. passport laws. We're not here to deport people. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what would happen to 90% of them. Yeah. Cool, man. So you left DS uh, in San Francisco. What are you doing now? You don't have to say any names. I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but what do you do now, <laughs> man? Or no trouble, no trouble. Name drop all you like. What are you doing? <laughs> right. So I work for Roche. It's a, it's a biotech pharmaceutical giant company. Um, they're the first people that would give me an interview and uh, if there's anybody out there looking to transition from the, the military or from law enforcement to the private sector, I know I came across a lot of challenges and it took some time. And now that I'm actually on the other side and hiring people, I understand it even more. Actually, I'm almost finding myself in the same position where you see folks like great DS agents, but they have zero else experience, right? They've only done DS or they only did the military. And so now you're, you're bringing them to a culture that's 180 degrees different where we, we're saying, hey, use your skills, but don't approach it in the same way. And I, I understand now they're just like, ah, do I want to take a risk on this person who doesn't, hasn't proven that they can do it? I'd rather not. I'd rather take someone who's already done it. And so I see a lot of that. And so I, I know what people are, the challenge people are facing because having done it, um, but for DS especially, we have a whole host of people who've left and done it and reached the highest levels in, in corporate security. So I just reached out to as many as I knew or would be willing to take my call. I was like, Hey, how the hell did you do it, man? <laughs> I mean, what tricks did you do? Are there any tricks? Like, uh, and there's no tricks. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, it takes a lot of grinding um, and a lot of networking and a lot of begging and a lot of reaching out to hiring managers and a lot of stuff. But, but um, yeah, it was, it was tough. But I think for DS especially, if you can get yourself into a room with a hiring manager, if you can get past the hurdles of the algorithms of getting your resume past it, if you can get yourself into that room, man, we have a huge advantage over any other agency. Once they hear your stories and you talk about some of these things, they're just like, holy shit, if you could handle that and you had the, enough judgment and people skills to get through that type of um, situation it's just going to be easy. <laughs> you can figure this shit out. Um, but it's tough to get into that room. Um, that was my challenge. Um, so I'm, but I've always been telling, I've been trying to reach out to veterans and law enforcement, like, Hey man, hit people like me up and ask questions and figure out if what, you're on the right track. Cause people help me, we're going to help you. So. Yeah. We talked about this. Uh, it wasn't recording at the time, but, but, uh, I, I I struggled with the transition just because San Diego the the in our field the market isn't you know uh, it's market one is saturated with people uh, and there's not a lot of opportunities and I had to get I got hired by a, a former DS agent and I didn't tell you this but my uh, he hired me directly and then there's another guy that's been about 15 years in DS that is my direct supervisor now 
former DSA. So I worked for two DSHs and, um, you know, but, it, but it was hard. And I, I think, you know, people think of the government, they think very strict and rigid and, um, you know, you, you gotta kind of yeah, hope, hope work, you know, grind for someone to give you a shot and then prove that, like we said, and it was Fred Ketchum that uh, I actually sent an email. He sent an email to me a, a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, you know, he gives speeches now. You know Fred, right? Fred was oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fred's a well-known DS. It's a great guy. And, and he says, uh, you know, uh, when I give these speeches to these different organizations, I say the diplomatic becomes before the word security. And that's where we excel. And my, well, the guy I work for, the CEO, which is, I mean, I work for this. I work for the chief security officer, but I'm, I'm the security for the CEO and I do a number of other things, ARSO style work, but he didn't know about DS before uh, the current chief security officers there. And so I expand a little more on these trips to different places with him and what we do. And he's like, man, you guys have a network everywhere. And I think it's not only do we have this skill set, and uh, you know, the ability, the interpersonal skills, to communicate with people, but we have a network of people around the world, uh, whether it's fellow DS agents, FSNs, um, just understanding how to communicate and collaborate and, and figure out culture in those countries to get the job done. And sure enough, I went over to one, a, a, a North African country. I can say it was Egypt. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I went to Egypt. You can always cut that out. I'm so, I'm so secretive, man. Uh, I'm always concerned about that, Joseph. I'm, I'm sick. <laughs> but anyway, but he was like, uh, you know, I worked with these guys, and and man, we negotiated our way up to the to the airport entrance where nobody but government officials gets picked up at the airport entrance. And because I went there and I met with the RSOs and I started communicating, I contacted some of their contacts and worked it. Sure enough, I was doing the shit for a private company that uh, the only government officials in Egypt get to do, picking up my CEO at that spot. And uh, I think that's it's a it's not a testament to me. It's a testament to the network that DS has placed me into. And I, I guess a little bit that I could be a decent human and communicate with people. And uh, it worked out, man. It worked out. And so I'll leave you this. I think you talked about it a little bit, but I want to ask you, because one of the reasons with this podcast, and I mean, we're only five in, right? But uh, eventually, I, I, you know, I hope this expands to get to the point where people understand where, where, where a hiring manager might listen to this and say, wow. These, there's this whole group of people I've never heard of that really have this skill set um, that are, no offense to our brothers in blue, but better than the FBI and DEA and Secret Service and these different in, in managing security, not necessarily right. anything else, in managing security and all the variables and elements that come along with it. We're the best. I think so. And so... Let's, let's end with this. What would you say to anyone listening, whether it be a hiring manager or someone, about DS agents, about their skill sets and their capabilities in coming to the private sector? 
you know what? This is this is fresh in my mind, right? So I just went through the interview process, and I what three, four months ago, right before the the virus hit, and um, so I got the job after my first my first really hiring interviews. And you have to, in the private sector, it's real thorough. It's not one; it's like ten. So you're they they're a lot more careful. They're a lot more selective about who they choose. They want to know who they're getting, and I didn't have. And I was I, I think for me. The best when I was talking to hiring managers, when I was talking to my future supervisor, I wasn't trying to bullshit them. They're looking, they're really looking for people who don't, they don't, you don't need to know exactly what you're going to do in that job. They just need to know that you have common sense, you're a good communicator, and you're, you have those soft skills that, that can make you really effective anywhere. And we say that, but. It, it, man, you'd be shocked how many people they come across that just don't have them and they pick it up like that. And so when it would become, they'd ask like, hey, do you know about this and this and this? I had, I had done my homework. I had gone and take, taken some courses and certifications so I could speak to speak. Now, did I know everything about how I would actually implement some of these like things like a, a business continuity plan or a workplace violence prevention program? I didn't. I had worked some of those aspects in DS from a security management perspective, but I hadn't done it in the private sector. But you don't need to know everything. You just need to be able to like sit down in a room, talk to people like, hey, what's important to you and how can I help you? And in DS, we do that all the fucking time. <laughs> we do that all the, the good ones do, right? The good ones don't have the answer to everything. They want they can sit down with a political officer who they don't even like. They can sit down with a DCM who's a, being a dickhead and who's obstinate. And we can say, listen, we're going to the same goal. How do we get there? And the good ones get there. They might have to sacrifice a little bit to get something. There might be a, a compromise. There might be some flexibility involved, but we get there. We might be, a, and that, that's, that's for everything. And when, so that for me, they hear that and they're just like, I could drop Joe anywhere in the world and he'll get what's get done, what needs to get done. And that type of stuff doesn't, you can't, some people can say that, but we do it. <laughs> We've done it. I mean, you drop me on the other side of the world and ask me to set up something. I'll do it. I'll figure it out. And, um, and there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of other great agencies out there, a lot of great people out there. And I know they, they probably could do it just as well. But we're put in places very early on in our career where we get to actually do it. And I don't think a lot of people get that. Um, and, and so, uh, and especially in the private sector, they like to talk about diversity. They like to talk about fairness. I mean, I was, I think I was asked like, you know, explain to me how you've worked in a diverse, you know, working environment. And I was like, in my brain, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, it doesn't get more diverse. Right? <laughs> I, I was just in a country with five different religions, you know, several different languages. I had different types of like, you know, male, female types of uh, dynamics working on from a cultural perspective I had to deal with. Um, we, we, if you're, if you've served overseas, I mean, in an embassy or consulate, you've done it. You just probably haven't figured out how to verbalize it. And it's just like me when you, we, I was doing this podcast, I was like, I hadn't, when I read your book, I went back and thought, and I was like, man, there's some cool shit we've done. And there's really relevant experience that we did. We just haven't stopped to think about how do we turn that into the right language so they, they understand. Because they don't know. They, uh, people who haven't been in our shoes, they just don't know. And so it's our job to make sure that we clearly communicate it. 
And, and so if you can do that, you can over, you can jump over that hurdle of getting from, for me, look at my background was purely public sector, 100%. Um, so I had to figure out how to communicate to people who actually didn't know DS. I didn't get my job because of my DS network. I got a lot of support from my DS network on how to, on what certifications, how to make my resume look, what type of language. Uh, shout out to Mark Baker and Eric Donnell. I don't know if you know those dudes. I know Eric well. I was in Vietnam with him. Dude. I'm trying to yeah. get him on the podcast. To get that he, dude on the podcast. I Well, he keeps saying, uh, I don't know if my company will allow me. And so you need to reach out to him if you have his contact and tell him, go on Cody's podcast. I'm going to, I want to write him after this. No, he was a, you get him on there. He's great investigator, he's great investigator. And he learned to speak the language of his particular corporation to get to translate his experience into what they look for. So if you can figure that out, that's going to get you whatever type of uh, role you're looking for. It's just so tough, man. And, and a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, obviously. Right. It's not that odd. I've, I'm interviewing folks in DS out in different agencies. It's not obvious. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> so I don't know if that would answer the question for advice, but that, that was my experience. No, I think that's great. I think that's uh, important, and you're right. We can figure it out. We're put in the situations where we have to figure it out. And I mean, DS gives us the the BRSO course, the Basic Regional Security Officer course, and that's fine. I think MSG gave from you and I a, a pretty good baseline of security, and then you know, there's the other elements that are obviously involved with DS, and um, I just don't know of another organization that can prepare because we we literally protect facilities and people and information at places where there are real threats and protecting a location that is likely one of the biggest targets in every country, you know, the most powerful nation on earth. Um, I don't see how you can oh, surpass yeah. that. Our risks are so much, it's so much more real life. I mean, in the private sector, you're planning for what ifs and there's threats depending on where they're located. But we represent the U.S. government overseas in DS. And so that threat's always present. <laughs> so it's a little bit different. And that's actually the challenge sometimes when you transfer to the private sector, you have to change your mindset like, okay, <laughs> that threat level has changed. <laughs> so you need to adjust to how you you're, you create your mitigation strategy. It certainly toned down the private sector. I'm still in the defense industry, so... Uh that's a little better. Yeah, and, but it's great because they speak my language. You know, the, the people. Oh, yeah. It's a good community. We have a great, great uh, company. Uh, but anyway. I'm coming down there someday, man. I want to keep me in mind. Come down. Uh, I know some of the security folks at different companies here. There are a few DS agents uh, in those companies. So if you apply and. Uh, my boss, the chief security officer, is in a group with his other chief security officers in San Diego. And I guarantee you he would stand up for you uh, should you be interested in applying or whatever you want to do with some company Man, down here. Are, are we networking right now? What we're are we doing? Networking. That's exactly <laughs> we're networking what we're right doing. now. That's what we're, we're doing. Never, we're still recording, never stops. we're networking. <laughs> never stops. That's finally important, sir. Hey, listen, uh, thank you for coming on. This has been great. I appreciate it. No, thanks don't, for having me. Don't hang up yet. I'm going to stop the recording and we're going to chat a little bit. Cool, man. All right, man. Thanks for coming thanks. on. 
right. That was Joe Damaris. Thanks, Joe, for coming on. Uh, appreciate everyone for listening. If you are interested in learning more about DS Agents and what we do, I have a book out. It's called Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. You can get it at my website, CodyPeron.com. Actually, it's on Amazon, but uh, the website will send you to Amazon. It is available on paperback, available in Kindle, and in Audible, where you can hear my sweet voice talk for hours at a time. CodyPeron.com also has uh, my YouTube videos that I put out for aspiring DS agents. It has uh, my Instagram and some other social media, some blogs. Agents Unknown underscore book is my Instagram. That's what I'm most active on. Also on LinkedIn and a little bit on Twitter. So if you're interested, check me out. Check out the book. Give me a shout if you have questions. Info at CodyPeron.com. Info at CodyPeron.com. That's C-O-D-Y-P-E-R-R-O-N.com. And once again, I will say thank you for the support. Y'all have a great week. Thanks, y'all. Out.